Well, good afternoon to all. Nice to join you again on this Tuesday afternoon. By the way, that is a terrific Moody Blues song. So just in case you weren't uh, aware of that, um, they put out some incredible music. Tuesday afternoon was one of those wonderful ones. My friends Eric and Cindy Mosley, if they're watching, I know they get that. And there are several others of you that typically tend to watch that will likely get that uh, as well. Uh, it's not unusual if you know me that uh, you will hear a, uh, a song title or a line from a song uh, stuck in there somehow or another, and that's certainly, um, that's certainly one of the great ones. Um, uh, doesn't have much to do with the Apostle Paul and his first mission journey, but it's good enough because today is Tuesday and it's in the afternoon here in Tyler, Texas. So welcome. Welcome to the study. Hello to my friends Larry and Lynn Murphy. Glad that y'all are here. I know there are a few others that are viewing and a few others that will sign in and say hello, and uh, I hope that, uh, that you're able to do that. This lesson today is going to go through uh, uh, two chapters, Acts 13 and 14. Uh, don't get scared. It's okay. That'll, that'll be all right. We'll get through that. Uh, my friends Lenny and Joe are here again from Arlington. Great to see you all. Always nice to have you and to be a part of your life on our study days on Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons. Uh, Acts 13 and 14 is um, a great passage because it is Paul's first mission journey, and he's going to go with his friend Barnabas, who is one of those guys that uh, actually... Uh, took him around when he was baptized in Damascus and then went back to Jerusalem and everyone was a little bit uh, uh, uneasy uh, to figure out if this was really legit and um, Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church so horribly uh, in its first years and uh, then saying that he had seen the Lord and, and actually was beginning to preach the gospel he had tried to destroy. Uh, but it was uh, Barnabas who took him by the hand and, and took him to the apostles and risked his life and theirs, uh, knowing that uh, Paul's story was uh, actually true. Um, so he was, um, uh, he was taken by Barnabas at that point. Barnabas gets him and takes him to Antioch of Syria, uh, which leads us to uh, the first mission journey in just a few moments. Nice to see Cindy and Eric uh, with us. Glad that y'all are here as well. Uh, man, I really miss seeing y'all, and it's great to uh, great to have you uh, on these on these studies. So you may want to get uh, your handy dandy Bible map. Uh, a lot of study Bibles and commentaries and Bible dictionaries, Bible encyclopedias. Those are all really good tools, by the way, for good Bible study. I think a good Bible dictionary is a, is a nice tool. Smith's Bible Dictionary um, is good. Uh, there are a few others I have. Uh, the New Bible Dictionary uh, that's not so new now, but is also a good one. Uh, and, uh, of course, a good Bible encyclopedia. There are several of those around. Uh, good commentary is always helpful. Uh, if you're looking at the book of Acts, I have Paul, uh, Apostle of the Heart Set Free by F.F. F. Bruce. That's a great study of the Apostle Paul, which, of course, is a good part of the book of, of, the book of Acts. Uh, John Stott has a great commentary on the book of Acts called The Spirit, the Church, and the World. Uh, love that uh, title. And um, lots of other uh, great uh, commentaries. There's a commentary 
uh, by McGarvey called New Commentary on Acts of Apostles. Um, and uh, since J.W. McGarvey lived quite a long time ago, um, I think in the uh, 19th century, maybe, uh, something like that, you uh, that might be a little bit of an older commentary. I can't remember if he was in the 19th or 20th, but early part of the 20th at the latest. Uh, but anyway, it's not new, but it uh, might be new to you and still helpful. There are a lot of others that are out there. Uh, the New International Commentary on the New Testament is a great uh, is a great series. Those little red hardback commentaries from the Church of Christ, uh, the Living Word commentaries, are very helpful, uh, very textually oriented, and I love I love that because it gives you a really good idea of what's going on. Um, and uh, uh, lots of others, um, lots of others. The Tyndale Commentaries is a nice uh, commentary series uh, as well. I'm trying to see if I've got some others. Um, uh, uh, there's uh, a couple of others that are great series, and and so I'm sure that uh, a lot of folks have the pulpit commentaries, which is a standard uh, that gives you a good verse-by-verse uh, -verse textual study, and then um, and then kind of an expository study that goes uh, everywhere, uh, preaching the word, so to speak, just looking at that chapter and those verses, and maybe taking some lessons out of it. Actually, a homiletic commentary, which will allow you to, uh, might help you give some lessons from that, um, and the first part is more of an ex exposition of the text. Um, all of that to say, find a Bible map. I'm trying to figure out a good way to do this, um, me being so tech savvy and everything. Uh, this is um, a, uh, a map from my Bible, which is an NIV. It is the New International version. It is um, uh, the uh, uh, NIV study Bible that I've used for years. Uh, the latest version is 2011. Um, I, you know, there are a lot of things that I love about it. There are a lot of things that I uh, sometimes don't love about it. The English Standard Version is a good literal translation uh, as well. The NIV, I think, is a reliable translation. If you have the old King James, it's four, uh, let's see, 20, 1611, so um, over 400 years old now. Um, that is one that we all cut our teeth on that have lived for a while, and a lot of you still memorize, have verses memorized in the King, King James Version. That's okay. Uh, the New King James Version is an updated version of that. Uh, there are others out there, I think, that, um, that may be as, as helpful as these. I loved the New American Standard Version um, because it was a more literal translation as well. And I think the ESV, the English Standard Version, is kind of the, the standard for that uh, these days. So I use the NIV because it's very readable. I love the way it's uh, set in the Bible, um, which, of course, is not the way it was originally written. It was all uh, just something that was um, connected. They didn't even use punctuation. So in the, uh, in the first century, in the New Testament Greek, the Koine Greek, it was all um, uh, uh, letters, it was no periods, no paragraphs, none of that. So those who translate it have their work cut out for them and they do a splendid job. So it's always good if you don't know the original languages and can do that to get several different English translations and compare them and go do from that. A lot of people like the message um, uh, by Eugene Peterson, which is, again is a very helpful Bible tool. It's more of a commentary than a translation. It's a paraphrase like the Living Bible was way back in the day, uh, back, I guess, in the 70s. And um, it's, uh, it's helpful, it's useful, it's beautifully written, 
um, but it's a paraphrase, and so that's not the same as a translation. It's as if you were to write down a, um, a chapter of John 1, and you wrote it so that uh, one of your friends could understand what was reading, and you're, you're more interested in the understanding than in the actual translation uh, of the specific literal words. Again, a helpful tool, but you have to be careful with those. Uh, the NIV, the English Standard Version, the KJV, those are all good, reliable translations, some of them based on more recent manuscript evidence than others, and there are more translations that will come out as well. Um, all of that little sermonette, uh, which I wasn't planning on doing, but figured it was a good time for that anyway, uh, to uh, again show you the, the, um, the map of Paul's first mission journey. You likely have one. If you don't have a study Bible like this one that has it in the text, you probably have a map in the back, uh, a set of maps, and you can look for Paul's first mission journey. Um, and a couple of things that you'll notice about this, you'll notice that on the uh, eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, the northeastern part, that's where this begins in Antioch of Syria. That will be Paul's starting point. And he goes to that little island of Cyprus, and then he goes on uh, that uh, where he lands, uh, lands uh, in uh, uh, Asia up there on the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea and then goes up inland. That's all uh, what we would call modern-day Turkey. Um, those are provinces of modern-day Turkey. The far western province would be the province of Asia where great cities like Ephesus and Thyatira and the other seven churches of, of Asia were. Um, but all of this is modern-day Turkey, that region of, the, of Galatia. Paul wrote a letter to the Galatian churches. It's kind of in the central, north-central part of what we would call modern-day Turkey. And, um, and so that's also possibly where the recipients of First and Second Peter uh, lived as well. Not sure uh, specifically exactly about that, but that's what it seems. Uh, those uh, provinces, areas, regions of Pamphylia and Pisidia, he will stop at a church in Antioch of Pisidia uh, and preach uh, in the synagogue, as we'll read in just a moment. Uh, the uh, province of uh, Phrygia, he, uh, he'll look at, he'll go to some towns of Lystra and Derby, and then in Derby he'll turn around and, and begin to come back. And he'll retrace, he and Barnabas will retrace their steps, and they will go back and uh, bypass Cyprus as they come back and then return to Antioch of Syria, again just inland from the northeastern um, uh, coast of the Mediterranean Sea uh, in, um, in Syria. So you can, uh, if you find your map, you can uh, 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 check it out as we go. We'll be in Acts chapters 13 and 14, and you may have noticed uh, on there some other things, such as the date. Um, the NIV dates that around 46 to 48 in the Common Era. Um, and um, that's likely true, 47 to 49 or some other dates I've seen. Uh, the Jerusalem conference that happens right after this in um, Acts chapter 15, not right after, it could be uh, several months or even a year after, but not long after. <clears throat> the Jerusalem conference is seen in Acts 15, and that's likely uh, around A.D. 49. So this all happens before then. Paul and Barnabas spend two to three years. Uh, in this first mission journey uh, that we will be reading about. <clears throat> and uh, so if you don't have a map in your Bible, uh, you can't call one up on your iPhone or laptop or whatever you're using, um, Google it and Google Paul's first mission journey uh, map. And amazingly enough, it will, it will show up. 
Um, and uh, somehow or another, hopefully you won't lose me uh, in the process of doing that. Um, that could be a good trade-off for you, but I don't know. We'll see. Uh, my friends Jerry and Beverly have joined us. Uh, my old friend Jim Bradley. Oh, brother, I hope you are doing well. Uh, love you. Love your family so much. And um, it's great to see you joining us uh, today. Others will likely come along as we go. Um, and if you want to send a shout out or write a question in, I'll check those out uh, after we're done. I may uh, be able to see one or two as we go. Uh, typically, I'm a one-track mind kind of person. I'm a bit focused and on task. Um, those of you that know me know that I'm, it's hard for me to do more than one thing at a time. So we'll see how that works, uh, but it's great to have so many of you joining us. Um, as I said, this mission journey is going to be an out and back, and that always reminds me of running. I haven't done much running lately, uh, but I have done a lot of running in past years, as most of you know. And uh, sometimes the course is an out and back where you uh, may be on a, a 5K course, uh, 3.1 miles, and basically it's you, you run a, a certain uh, course uh, on the streets and then you have a place where everybody turns around and you come back and you retrace their steps. And that's kind of what Paul and Barnabas do on this mission trip. They go out, as we saw on the map, and they will uh, look at, uh, uh, preach in some cities and establish some churches and do a lot of good and also... Uh, endure some persecution, and then uh, and then they return. Uh, so uh, that's the plan. Uh, a few things about what leads up to this. First of all, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in um, uh, in Acts chapter nine. And as we look about that, as we think about that, that's probably been um, a little less than fifteen years before this happened. So Paul has only been a Christian, you know, for maybe twelve, thirteen, fourteen years at this time. Uh, maybe less, maybe as a little as few as 11 years, 10 or 11 years, and and yet here he is, a leader in the church, of course, gifted with the Holy Spirit, uh, and called to be an apostle, having seen the resurrected Jesus in Acts chapter 9, and praying and fasting for three days, and then Ananias comes to him and says, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, as Paul records himself telling the story in Acts 22. Uh, that conversion is super significant. Another conversion in Acts 10, super significant. Cornelius and his family, who were non-Jews, the, the first Gentiles are non-Jews, uh, converted uh, to Jesus Christ. And um, uh, Barnabas, again, had a role at the very beginning in uh, Saul's uh, 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 Christian life as uh, he helped him, introduced him to the apostles in Jerusalem and helped uh, uh, verify that he was for real and that the stories they heard about his conversion uh, were true. And so uh, Peter baptizes Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, and his family, and then in Acts 11 goes back home, as we studied, to Jerusalem and has to explain everything uh, to his fellow apostles and other church leaders who were all Jews at that time. Uh, but that would change very quickly now that Peter had baptized uh, Cornelius and God had demonstrated through the giving of the Spirit that that was exactly his will. And then the focus shifts uh, towards the end of the book of Acts to this church in Antioch of Syria. And uh, this church is a, is a great church. Some of those who had been scattered uh, out of Jerusalem, uh, out of Palestine, uh, to go to um, uh, different areas in the surrounding area, begin to fulfill Jesus' call and the Great Commission to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, provinces of Judea and Samaria. 
and then uh, to the rest of the world. And so they get to that northern province of Galilee, and they go a little bit further, and they get to Antioch and to, and to Syria and, and beyond. Um, they go even farther than that. Uh, but that church in Antioch of Syria um, takes that seriously, and they begin to reach out to Gentiles. They don't just hear that some Gentiles have been converted. They, they begin to reach out to them and evangelize them, and this is a very strong church. It's a great church. The, the church in Jerusalem even hears about that, Acts 11 tells us, and sends uh, Barnabas up there. And Barnabas is there and is very encouraged and does a lot of encouraging to them as well. And he looks around and he sees everything that's going on and he says, I know just the guy that needs to be here and to be a part of this. And so he goes to Tarsus. Saul had gone home. He goes to Tarsus and he gets Saul and he brings him back to Antioch. And they, Barnabas and Saul, have a great ministry with the church there at Antioch and become a strong part uh, of that church. And as you know, Acts 11 verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, this great uh, church in Antioch of uh, Syria. And they're interested not just in their neighborhood, not just in their area, but they hear through a prophet that there's going to be a famine in Judea. And so they make a collection and send it. And they get Barnabas and Saul, and they say, you guys take this down there to, take to, down there to or up there, actually, even though it's south. It's up because of, of uh, uh, how uh, high it is. And, they, and so they go up to Jerusalem, and they take that money, and they're there for a while, um, and, then, um, and, then they, uh, and then they return. And that gets us uh, that brief mention at the end of Acts chapter 12 that Barnabas and Saul returned from their mission, and they're there uh, in Antioch of Syria, and everything is uh, going uh, great. At this time, Barnabas has brought with them a relative of his, a cousin, uh, John, also called Mark, who will be uh, play a significant role in what we're about to read and, and also in, uh, in the first century church. Uh, this John, John Mark, uh, goes by Mark, uh, will become a companion for Paul and Barnabas for a while. And then he will kind of get cold feet and leave. And so Paul will have a hard time uh, taking him on the second mission journey. And that's when he and Barnabas have a falling out. Uh, and so that'll be kind of interesting to read about uh, there at the end of Acts chapter 15 on, on uh, Thursday or next week, depending on how soon we get to it. And, uh, and so Barnabas and Paul, still called Saul at this time until during this trip, uh, when he is also called Paul, and then the rest of the time is referred to as Paul, uh, they take John Mark with them. Later, uh, Mark would become a very uh, strong companion of the Apostle Peter, who refers to him just as the way uh, Paul refers to uh, Timothy, uh, my son in faith, um, in the gospel. Peter calls, um, Peter calls John Mark, and uh, also Paul, in some of his later writings, will talk about how useful uh, uh, Mark is in his ministry. And so the, there, there is some issues there that we'll read about. Uh, but there, there is also some um, patching up that, that happens. And so it's great. It's great to see that. So let's get to it. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse uh, 1. Uh, the first mission journey of the Apostle Paul, uh, accompanied by his friend Barnabas and Barnabas' young cousin, uh, John Mark. Acts 13, verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, again, Antioch of Syria, 
There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, uh, so a guy of means probably, and Saul, this new convert, relatively new, uh, but one who had seen the Lord and was actively uh, be preaching the word. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the church fasted. Again, it's no secret, this was a praying church. It was a church that fasted. It was a church that was very interested in benevolence. It was a church, as we're going to see, that was very interested in mission and evangelism. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. No COVID-19 at the church at Antioch of Syria in the first century. They placed their hands on them. Uh, boy, we miss that, don't we? We miss being together with everybody. We miss being able to shake hands and hug uh, without damaging our consciences or putting anybody at risk. And I know it's a hard time right now, and it's, it's hard to do Zoom classes. Uh, we're all tired of that, but it, we're so grateful for it. It's hard uh, to do Facebook Live studies. It's it's hard to meet uh, at church and see two-thirds or half or more of your church family not able to be there. And, and it's hard to, to be there and not hug the ones that are there and shake hands. One of the hardest things for me, I've done uh, two or three uh, memorial services, graveside services, since all of this began. And one of the hardest things for me is to not, not shake hands and hug family members of those who, who have died at a memorial service. I just, it just is beyond me um, that we can't do that, but, but it's the wise thing to do. And so we, we can still worship. We can still uh, praise God, uh, even to some extent together. Uh, but we also understand that um, uh, there are some limits uh, that we're placing on ourselves right now uh, that allow us to uh, be smart, to be wise, to be respectful of our civil authorities and to be considered and loving towards um, each other. Um, but not in Antioch of Syria. <laughs> they laid hands on them, they prayed, they fasted, and then they sent them off to do what? Well, to spread the gospel, to preach, uh, to go on a mission trip. I guess this is the first church-sponsored mission trip right here, and it involves Barnabas and Saul. And for a while, uh, this young uh, Christian man, John Mark. And so the two of them, verse 4, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus, that island that's out in the Mediterranean Sea, uh, just west of Syria, Phoenicia, and um, west and a little north of Judea and um, Galilee. Uh, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God uh, there on the island of Cyprus. Uh, in the Jewish synagogues, John was with them as their helper. So even though Luke hasn't given him much attention yet, he mentions that John was with them. He came back with them from their mission trip that was a benevolence mission trip that Antioch had sent them out on to uh, Judea. When they came back, uh, John Mark, his family lived in Jerusalem. Uh, his uh, home, his mother's home, as best we can tell, was one where the church actually uh, met, uh, very likely. And there's a lot that is said um, about John Mark. He's the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And many say because he was so close to the Apostle Peter that if Peter had written a Gospel, it would be similar to what uh, Mark 
um, had written. Uh, there's an interesting little caveat about this guy, John Mark, in Mark 14, verse 51. He's not named, um, and it may be an indication that that's, he's talking about himself, uh, but he talks about this young man who was there when Jesus was arrested and got so scared that he had to flee without his clothes. And um, uh, that's an interesting story about John Mark. Um, in Acts chapter 12, when uh, the church is praying, uh, for Peter, as he has been arrested after the Apostle James, the brother of John, had been killed. Uh, they're there at the home uh, of uh, John Mark and his, his mother. 1 Peter 5, verse 13 is the verse where Peter refers to him as his son in the gospel. And then uh, Paul refers to him and how helpful he is in Colossians 4, verse 10, 2 Timothy 4, 11, and Philemon, verse 24. So, Nice to know that, um, that uh, Mark has a great part in the first century church. And nice to know that because of what we'll read here in just a few moments. Right now in verse 5, he is with them as their helper. And so verse 6, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, which is on the western part of the island, southwestern part. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. When you see that word Bar before a name... That means son of, and it's likely not Jesus of Nazareth that it's talking about here. It's a very common name. It was derived from uh, the same uh, uh, derivation of Joshua. Uh, Jehovah saves, the Lord saves, and so it was a common name. Of course, Jesus of Nazareth uh, had, had it given to him in a very special way. They met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear uh, the word of the Lord. So this man, this proconsul, was a sharp guy. And he had this, uh, this man, Bar-Jesus, who is also called Elymas, as we'll read about, uh, who was kind of one of his attendants. Uh, but um, Sergius Paulus is an impressive guy, and he sends for Barnabas and Saul. He hears they're there, and he hears about them teaching and preaching there, and, uh, and he wants to talk to them. And so, uh, and so he, he does. He's already, they've already been teaching and preaching in the Jewish synagogues, as uh, Luke has recorded, and will again as we go on. Uh, but Elymas, who is uh, also known as Bar-Jesus in verse 8, Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So he tried to discourage him from hearing uh, the gospel. Then Saul, uh, Acts 13, verse 9, then Saul, who is also called Paul, uh, and that is, that's, as, that's as much as we know about that. <laughs> uh, Saul is a common name for the Jews. As you know, the first king of Israel was King Saul. Interestingly enough, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, as was Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul of the tribe of Benjamin. So obviously, King Saul, one of their heroes, the first king of Israel, even though things didn't go too well for him there uh, after he had uh, adjusted to the power of being king. Um, still, he was one of the heroes of the Jews, uh, likely the one that Saul of Tarsus was named for. Um, and so Luke mentions here in verse 9, Saul, who was also called Paul, and that's all he says about it, and then the rest of the time he is called, um, he is referred to as Paul, Paul being the more Greek or Hellenistic uh, version of his name. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul looked straight at Elymas, this 
false prophet and sorcerer, and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, verse 12, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Uh, this proconsul, again, was a sharp guy. He was an official, and he uh, uh, wanted to hear Barnabas and Paul and what they had to say. And when he heard, he was impressed. And when he saw the power behind their teaching, uh, he was impressed as well. And so he became uh, a believer uh, in the Lord, as, as we see. Um, and so now, beginning in verse 13, their mission journey continues. And we're going to get to hear the first sermon that is recorded uh, from the Apostle Paul. He'd preached lots of sermons already, obviously. Uh, that started right away. Uh, but this is the first one that Luke's going to record, and it's going to be very similar to the other early sermons in the book of Acts, such as Peter's in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, or Stephen's uh, in Acts 7 uh, that got him killed. And the reason why it's really similar to those, even though Gentiles are now being uh, reached with the gospel, um, Paul and Barnabas and uh, 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 Paul and Barnabas and John Mark are going to be in, um, in uh, the synagogue. And so it's going to be a very Jewish-sounding sermon. So verse 13, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. And there's not really anything more said about that until you get to the end of Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas and the church at Antioch are ready to go for round two, the second mission journey, and the plan is to send Paul and Barnabas again, and Barnabas wants to take his cousin again, John Mark, and Paul says no, and this is why. Uh, Acts 13, verse 13. They hadn't gotten very deep into the trip yet, but they had gotten deep enough. I don't know if uh, his cold feet was because of this sorcerer that he saw and the conflict that they had there, and or maybe he just missed home. His home was in Jerusalem. Maybe he just decided he wasn't cut out for mission work after all, at least not yet. Uh, he would be later. Uh, Paul would even mention himself uh, for them to uh, tell, tell Mark to come to him because he's, he's helpful for him um, in some of his letters. But this time, um, this time he has a good heart. He wants to go and he wants to help. Uh, but he, he leaves before it's time to leave. And, and Paul has a hard time getting over that. So hard that when Barnabas wants to take John Mark, Paul refuses for the second mission trip. And that's when Paul and his, one of his best friends, Barnabas, um, uh, kind of have a, uh, uh, get into it a little bit and have a conflict. And they end up going their separate ways. But as we'll read about at the end of Acts 15, uh, they go their separate ways, but where Satan tries to um, divide them and defeat their purpose, it actually works to the advantage of the gospel because instead of one mission team, they become two mission teams. But we'll get there. That's a great story, too. From Perga, verse 14, now without Mark, 
Uh, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Again, this is not Antioch of Syria. That was the church that sent them in the northwest, northeastern corner of uh, just uh, inland a little bit from the northeast coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This is now in modern-day Turkey. This is now uh, in the region of Pisidia and is also a city called uh, Antioch. Uh, on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. Verse 15, after the reading from the Law and the Prophets, which they did on the Sabbath day in the synagogues, the leaders of the synagogue, the synagogue leaders, sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Never tell a preacher that. <laughs> if you want to say something, uh, if, unless you're ready for it, then don't, don't give them that opportunity, because believe me, we will. <laughs> we will. And, um, and Paul and Barnabas are only too happy uh, to speak to the Jews. They are gathered on the Sabbath in the synagogue at Antioch of uh, Pisidia. And so verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Cana. So we've gone now from the call of Abraham to uh, the slavery, being enslaved in Egypt, to Moses leading them out, to Joshua uh, helping them uh, to conquer the land of Canaan. Giving their land to his people as their inheritance, all this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet, and that's all he wants to say about that because those judges, wow, if you've studied the book of Judges, you know those guys were not exactly great role models. They were used by God in magnificent, amazing ways. Uh, but guys like Gideon and guys like uh, Samson and guys um, uh, like uh, all of those others that uh, just you're thinking, eh, I don't know, Jephthah, I don't know. Uh, verse 21, then the people asked for a king, which God had anticipated, even gave Moses instructions about um, what the king should do when he gave him the law. Then the people asked for a king, and even though Samuel knew it was a bad idea, um, he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. Uh, even though he had that terrible sin uh, with Bathsheba and the, the murder of Uriah and the deceit that David used to try to hide his sin and, and other issues at times as well, uh, David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, wrote all of those so many beautiful, wonderful psalms. Had such a great relationship with God, even though uh, he sinned great sins and uh, and risk losing that relationship, risk losing that Holy Spirit as he prayed uh, in that penitential psalm, Psalm 51, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Um, uh, he was a man after God's own heart. Uh, from this man's descendant, King David, verse 23 of Acts 13, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Speaking of John the Baptist, who would be killed before Jesus, a relative of Jesus uh, that uh, Herod would have beheaded. 
because of his hard preaching uh, about divorce and remarriage. Verse 26, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles. Remember, he's still in the synagogue, so only Jews and what they called God-fearers, Gentiles who'd become Jews. It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Pilate, the Roman governor, who is the one who could actually had the power and authority to have Jesus crucified. They didn't just want him stoned to death. They wanted him crucified. Verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So again, very similar to what we have already heard from Peter's sermon in Acts 2, from Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. It's a, and he's going to be quoting in the rest of the sermon from the Old Testament. Why? Because he's talking to Jews. In Acts 17, when he's in Athens, he doesn't quote Old Testament scripture, as we would call it. Rather, he quotes a couple of their poets and philosophers. Um, and so all of this is going on again in Antioch of uh, Pisidia. And, um, and one of the significant differences between this sermon and the earlier sermons in Acts uh, is instead of saying uh, God called Jesus, he uh, uh, brought him in to be the Savior, you killed him, God raised him. Uh, he doesn't say you killed him now because he is not in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, Peter and Stephen would be very clear, uh, and, and Peter and John and others, when they're making their defense before the Jewish authorities, they would tell them plainly, you had Jesus killed. But in this case, it, that's not the case. In this case, what uh, Paul says in verses uh, 27 through 29 is that the people of Jerusalem did this. They're still Jews. Maybe some of them were there uh, because that was during the feast days of, of Passover. But uh, that's not what Paul says. Uh, instead, he says, um, the people of Jerusalem had him killed, uh, cooperating with the Roman authorities, uh, especially Governor Pontius Pilate. Um, and so we, uh, we continue on, um, and he says, they're now his witnesses to the people. Again, they, they'd, they'd seen this in Jerusalem, and now uh, they were ready to, um, uh, to share um, about this Jesus that they had uh, that they had uh, crucified. Uh, verse 29, let's go back to there. Um, when they had carried out all that was written about him after they had had Pilate execute him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. The credibility of the message is what Paul is getting at. Verse 32, we tell you the good news or gospel what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. So now he's going to do what they have done in the earlier passages. I think this is also what Jesus himself probably told those two men who were on uh, the road to Emmaus, uh, that Jesus joined himself to. They didn't recognize that it was Jesus. And, um, and, and he tells them uh, his story. And going back to the Old Testament and telling them that, hey, look, you shouldn't be surprised that all of this happened. This was what was supposed to happen. Um, that's what Peter had done. That's what Stephen had done. 
And now that's what the Apostle Paul is going to do, again to Jews in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. As it is written, verse 33 in the middle in the second psalm, so Psalm 2, a royal psalm, talking about the king, ultimately the Messiah. You are my son. Today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Quotes a lot from the Psalms, Isaiah, and as we'll see uh, from another prophet, the prophet Habakkuk. Verse 36 of Acts 13. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He died. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. In other words, David wasn't talking about himself when he said, you're not going to allow me uh, to, to have my body decay. The passage goes on, you won't allow me to see corruption, my physical body, uh, but that's not true of David. As Peter would say, uh, his, his tomb is right here with us in Jerusalem uh, today. Uh, Paul, of course, not in Jerusalem. Uh, but he says in verse 37, the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. So David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus. Verse 38, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, verse 41, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. That's how Luke records Paul ending his sermon, and it's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 1, and it's that passage where God, uh, Habakkuk has told God, hey, how come you let so much injustice go on in our land? And God says, well, I'm going to do something about that, Habakkuk, and you won't believe me even if I tell you. And then he tells him, I'm going to bring in the ruthless pagan Babylonians, and they're going to take my people into captivity, and I'm going to discipline them for all the things that they have done and the sins that they've committed. Um, and of course, Habakkuk has a big problem with that. If you know me, you know Habakkuk's one of my favorite studies, one of my favorite Bible books, actually. And it's just an incredible study. But what Paul says here in, in helping them remember that story of Habakkuk and the sin in the um, uh, around 600 um, BC and the, the bringing in of the, the Babylonians, uh, to destroy his people, destroy Jerusalem, destroy Solomon's grand temple, and take them into exile in the time of Habakkuk and Jeremiah. Um, he warns the people of his day, don't, don't let that be true of you. You're hearing the gospel message. You're hearing the fulfillment of everything our people have looked forward to since the days of Abraham. Um, don't, don't let what Habakkuk said to the Jews of his day be true of you. Um, and so he's going to do something wonderful, and he has, but not everybody is going to accept it. Verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. So they had such a great hearing on that first Sabbath. They say, hey, why don't you guys come back next Saturday, and we'll go over all of this again. Uh, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So they continued teaching that week. That gets us to verse 44 of Acts 13. 
On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. All of a sudden, they were threatened and intimidated and jealous. Verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, to you Jews first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah. One of those passages where they should have known not to be too surprised when God opened up his church to Gentiles, but they were. When the Gentiles, verse 48, heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life uh, believed. Um, the Jews were jealous and tried to stir up trouble for Paul and Barnabas, um, but the Gentiles loved it. They're now for the first time seeing these Jews, these Jewish men who are now Christians, but who were Jews, teaching and preaching to them, uh, not telling them to become Jews, uh, but telling them, look, Jesus died for you, just like he died for me. And you can respond in faith, and you can be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. Um, and you can go on your way rejoicing as well. Um, verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region of Pisidia. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They got the leaders of the city and um, conspired against Paul and Barnabas. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium, nearby region. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They were seeing some great things and people were responding. Some people were rejecting them and some people were chasing them out of their town. But Jesus had told his disciples this is what was going to happen in Matthew 10 and in other passages. Um, and so we continue on this first mission journey, as we call it, um, because we're going to see this pattern continue that Luke has shared, going to the, to the Jews first, going to the synagogue, uh, having some success, being rejected, and then going and concentrating on the non-Jews or Gentiles. That's going to be a pattern for Paul on these mission journeys. In Iconium, chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Sometimes it's translated Greek. Sometimes it's referred to uh, as Gentiles. Uh, it's referring to those who are non-Jews. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, against Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And that's really interesting to me. You know, sometimes it says, well, they, they didn't have much faith there, so they went on their way. In this case, it says they were really struggled with the message that they were hearing, so Paul and Barnabas stayed. And I think, you know, that's what happens. If, if people are, are legitimately searching, even though they're struggling with it, even though they may uh, have some opposition to it. If they will let you stay and speak, then stay and speak. And that's what Paul and Barnabas uh, do uh, here in Iconium. The people of the city, verse 4, were divided. 
Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe nearby and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. Uh, sometimes the word apostle, one sent with a message, is used in a very technical sense, such as when it's used of Paul and the twelve apostles. Sometimes it's used, such as here, generally speaking, I think, of Paul and Barnabas as those sent with this message, this mission, uh, by the church at Antioch. I don't believe that Barnabas was one of the apostles in the same sense that Paul was and the twelve apostles were, um, but I do think that he was a, a, a special servant of God and a special leader of the church as we've seen from its earliest days. Um, so they go on, they continue their mission, they continue to preach the gospel, uh, and now we're in Acts 14, verse 8. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began uh, to walk. It reminds you a lot of that miracle that Peter and John did with that man who was by the gate called Beautiful at the temple in Jerusalem in Acts 3. I don't have any silver or gold for you, they told him, but what I do have, I'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And that got them in trouble. And that's when some of the persecution and the threats began. We're going to see the similar things with Paul and Barnabas uh, here. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So they thought Barnabas was greater than Paul because Paul was doing a lot more of the speaking. And they, uh, they used the Greek names, Zeus and Hermes. Uh, the Roman names would be Jupiter and Mercury. Uh, but the, they say, hey, the gods have come down to us in human form. Now, as you would expect, that's not going to go too well with Barnabas and Paul. Um, verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd. That, that's the way Jews would mourn. They would tear their clothes or if something uh, unbelievable was happening that they were totally against, such as when the uh, Jewish leaders tore their clothes at the words of Jesus uh, when he was being tried. Uh, that's what Barnabas and Paul do here to demonstrate their displeasure with what's going on. Uh, Friends, verse 15, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, creator. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. This part sounds very much like the sermon that Luke will record Paul preaching in Athens in Acts 17, where there were so many altars and idols that, uh, that Paul would find one that said to the unknown God and say, I want to talk to you about the one you don't know about. 
the one who is the one true and living God, the one who is the creator, the one who made everything, the one in whom we live and breathe and have our very being, Acts 17 will say. And a similar passage in that, um, in that sermon, Acts 17, verse 30, Paul says, look, God has put up with this ignorance long enough. He wants everyone now to repent and to not worship gods that are not gods at all, but to worship the one true and living God. That's what they tell these uh, people uh, in Lystra as well. Uh, verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium, where they had had uh, some opposition by the Jews, and they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby, a nearby city. And so Paul and Barnabas are, are persecuted, physically persecuted. They, they stone Paul. They think they're killing him just as Stephen had been killed in Jerusalem. They leave him for dead. But when the disciples, the believers, come around him, um, they find that he's not dead at all. Uh, was that a miraculous thing that Paul could just get up? I don't know. It doesn't say. It's not specific. But what we do know is that he was, he was persecuted, and he talks about his persecution uh, in places like 2 Corinthians 11 and uh, other places where he says, um, hey, I, uh, I, was, I was stoned and left for dead. Uh, I've been beaten. I've had been flogged. Uh, he speaks of his, um, his persecution in a couple of places in 2 Corinthians. And so they go to Derby and they preach the word there, although we don't hear much about that. <clears throat> Verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city, won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, uh, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true uh, to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. And they had experienced that firsthand. And so they wanted the disciples there that they were going to leave behind. They wanted them to know, look, don't be surprised. Just like Jesus warned his disciples, warns us today, don't be surprised if, if this brings hardship. Uh, you'll still have that inner joy that nothing can take away from you of the circumstances that you're under. Um, but, but you'll experience hardships. Uh, and, um, and Paul says, so don't be surprised if that happens. And then verse 23 of Acts 14, I think is significant. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had reached the word, preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they're going to sail back uh, to um, the, the, uh, the, the back to their home church in Antioch of Syria. But it's interesting as they, they again they do this out and back. They go out all the way to Derby, and then they retrace their steps pretty much, except for the island of Cyprus. And as they do, they appoint elders in each city. And again, they had miraculous gifts. Paul, being an apostle, was able to uh, pass those gifts along, as we saw uh, in Acts chapter 8, uh, with Philip and the Samaritans and calling John, uh, Peter and John down uh, from Jerusalem to lay their hands on them. Paul was able to do that. But he is, they appoint elders. And how, how long have these people been Christians even? Well, just a couple of years at the most, probably, two to three years. And... Um, and yet they appoint elders in those sounds. And very early in the church, as we see, this was God's plan. Uh, we see those seven men chosen in Acts chapter 6 for very specific tasks. The word deacon isn't used, but that's sure what they sound like. 
and Paul and Barnabas appoint elders in each city uh, that they have been to. Uh, we see those elders talked about in 1 Timothy 3 and, and Titus 1, where I, I think qualifications may not be the best word. I think qualities uh, of the elders is the right term. Um, and, uh, and, and it's a, it's a great, great passage to tell us the kind of men that we need to lead the church. First uh, Peter 5 speaks of all three of those terms that are used to describe them elders, uh, signifying that they're, 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 they're up in age. I mean, they're, uh, it, that differs from place to place. How old? That's a, that's kind of a relative, um, uh, decision. Um, but old enough to be mature enough to lead the church and to have the church's respect. Um, pres, uh, presbyters or bishops or overseers, also uh, a term that's used in 1 Peter 5. They are overseers. They oversee the work of the church. They don't do it all, just as we saw uh, the apostles and elders in Acts chapter 6 saying to the church, hey, uh, you need to find seven men to do these tasks. We can't do everything, and we're called to a specific task of leadership and prayer and preaching and teaching the word. Um, and, uh, and so they oversee the work of the church. They don't do everything. Uh, they oversee it. Um, elders and uh, bishops or presbyters or overseers, and then that great term shepherd. Um, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, as, as uh, Paul is meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus off the coast on the island of Miletus, uh, he tells them to shepherd the church of God, uh, which he purchased with his own blood. Uh, Peter talks to them as a fellow elder and fellow shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul mentions specifically as he writes to this beloved church of Philippi that financially supported him. Uh, he writes to them the first church perhaps in Europe um, uh, started on the second mission journey where Lydia was converted and the Philippian jailer. Uh, Paul addresses the church there and along with the elders and deacons. So very early we see this being God's plan and God's structure for his, his church. So finishing up in Acts 14, verse 26, from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, Antioch of Syria now, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So what happens here? It's Mission Sunday. <laughs> That's what happens. They go back to their home church, the Antioch in Syria, the church that provided the, the means that they needed to make this trip, the church that prayed and fasted over them and, and sent them off uh, two to three years before. They meet with the church there on Mission Sunday. They tell them all the stories of everything that had happened, all the people uh, that had believed and been baptized, uh, the persecution that they had had to endure, the opposition they had, the elders that they had appointed, uh, boy, what an exciting time that was. And, that, and we still experience that today when we have wonderful mission efforts that come to see our church, such as those that do the great work of Eastern European Mission, EEM, that provides Bibles in all kinds of languages in all parts of the world, uh, and other mission works that we have, such as um, the Biblical Institute uh, of Central America that we support uh, with such a great, great work. Uh, down there in uh, in Guatemala and in Honduras, and it's just so many exciting missions that that we hear God doing fantastic, amazing things. Even now, in the midst of a global pandemic, still wonderful things being done. That's what was happening that day. 
that time when they stayed there with their disciples, with their home church, and they told all the stories and everything about what had happened, and they were just filled with joy and with excitement about how God was using them and how God was working his work in his world through them. Um, in Acts 15, there's going to be a hitch in the Gideon, and that hitch is going to be caused by some Jewish Christians who are really uncomfortable with all these Gentiles that are coming into the church and send word down to Antioch of Syria and elsewhere, hey, you need to tell these Gentile Christians that they need to become Jews. Yeah, sure, let them be baptized. Sure, let them accept the gospel. But, but they need to keep the law of Moses too. Well, that's going to be the issue in Acts 15. And it's that issue that I think will, will uh, take on its own life throughout the rest of the New Testament. Um, but we'll tell that story. And we'll see that conflict. And Thursday at 4 p.m., we'll talk about Acts 15. And I'll use that conflict model uh, uh, from uh, Randy Lowry, the president of Lipscomb, again, that we kind of referred to in Acts chapter 6. But we'll talk more about it in Acts 15 and the interaction that they have. Um, Acts 13 and 14, great chapters. The church is off and running, fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave it to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in your town, in Judea and Samaria, in the surrounding areas, uh, and to the ends of the earth. The church at Antioch of Syria took that call seriously. I hope you will take that call seriously, and I hope that you will do everything in your power to see that your church takes that call seriously as well, because we continue to be God's witnesses in our hometown and neighborhoods, in the surrounding areas to the very end of the world. God bless you.